As a community, First Baptist Belton exists for the purpose of knowing Jesus intimately, serving Jesus passionately, and sharing Jesus globally. Come join us on Sundays at one of our worship services at 8.30 or 11 a.m. and for Bible study at 9.45. We hope today's message encourages you and strengthens your faith in God. All right, well, this morning we are going to begin our time together on the topic of prayer. Yes, I said prayer. And if you're anything like me, then prayer has been something that's been incredibly difficult in your life. I think we can all agree that if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But as it is, at least for me, maybe for you too, I've found that oftentimes my prayer life, I've struggled with it because it sometimes just feels like I'm talking at the ceiling or maybe I'm talking at the wall or sometimes it just feels like there's nobody on the other line. Yes, it's true. Prayer is incredibly difficult. And yet, and yet, hear this, prayer is the engine that drives our obedience to God. Yes, it's prayer. Prayer is the engine that drives our obedience to God. And so you may be asking yourself, well, well, what is prayer? What is prayer anyway? And I think what you would find in Matthew chapter 6 is that Jesus outlines prayer for us. And, and really what he says is that the basic definition of prayer is simply communicating with God. It's entering into a dialogue with God, just like you would with me or I with you, or if you were dialoguing with your spouse or a friend, a coworker, maybe, or even a neighbor. It is entering into a dialogue with God. Now, here's what's interesting about Matthew chapter 6. Jesus actually says that he expects that you and I would live a life of prayer. He expects that you and I would actually enter into a relationship with him and built into that relationship would be a dialogue, an ongoing conversation. But not only does he expect that we pray, but he expects that we would demonstrate our relationship with him through our prayer life, just like he does with the Father on his time on earth. You know, maybe you've even wondered what the secret sauce of prayer is. And and I'll just tell you, the secret sauce of prayer is this, that the God of the universe, the God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, he sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. And hear this, he knows exactly what you need before you ever even ask of him. The God of the universe, he knows you, he sees you, and he loves you, and he knows exactly what you need before you ever even ask him. Doesn't that just take the pressure off of you in prayer? It does, doesn't it? Knowing that God knows exactly what we need before we ever even ask. And so this morning, I want to build on that foundation, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. So I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. I'd like for you to read along with me. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, ask. He says, ask, and you will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? You know, in this well-known passage, it's broken up into two parts. The first part, Jesus offers us a, a command and then some promises associated with that command. And then in part two, Jesus tells this parable. And in doing so, he kind of gives us a window into the very heart of prayer. And so I want to look at part one with you here briefly. There's three points of, of regarding to prayer that I want you to see this morning. The first one is this. Hear this. Jesus invites us to pray. Why don't you just think about that for just a second? Jesus invites you and me this morning on a cold February morning. He is inviting us into a life of prayer with him. It would be similar to say that Jesus is inviting us to dine with him. Literally, think about it this way. The God, the creator, the sustainer of the entire universe has given you an open invitation for you to come to take a seat at his table and enjoy a meal with him. It's literally an invitation to dine with him. Now, sometimes I think that we we forget that Jesus came to this earth and in doing so, he did more than purchase our sin on the cross. Certainly not less than that. We don't want to ever minimize the, the fact that Jesus has bore the wrath of our sin on the cross. Absolutely. But uh, an implication for that is that Jesus also bought us a relationship with him. Jesus actually bought us a relationship with God that to, that we are now able to speak to God, not through a mediator, but but one on one. See, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we no longer need a mediator, but we can actually come into his presence and enjoy a conversation with with him. This is a reality that you and I get to experience only on this side of the cross. But not only does Jesus invite us into a life of prayer, but in verse 7, he actually commands that we do so. Think about that. Really, Jesus commands that you and I would ask, that we would seek, and that we would knock. And get this, here's the craziest thing about all this. The craziest thing about this invitation to pray is that Jesus promises to answer. That's point number two. Jesus literally promises to answer you and me. In verse 8, he says, Everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be open to you. And you can think about that as well. Jesus is simply saying here, if you need something, all you have to do is just ask and it will be given to you. I think oftentimes we overcomplicate overcomplicate prayer and what Jesus is doing here he's simplifying it and he's just saying hey if you need something just ask of me just seek me and you will find me just knock on the door and I will open it for you and so while Jesus invites us to dine with him we can rest assured that when we do so when we take a seat at that table Jesus is not one who is distracted God is not distracted but rather he is intently focused on exactly what you need and exactly what you want Jesus sees you he knows you and he loves you and he is eager to hear from you as his son and his daughter Now Jesus invites us to pray he promises to meet our needs, but also, number three, Jesus casts a vision for, hear this, 
persistence in our prayer life. Persistence in our prayer life. That's indicative of this idea of asking, of seeking, of knocking. See, what Jesus is doing is he's asking us to demonstrate a life of persistence in prayer. You know, it's as if God is giving us an open invitation to annoy him, to irritate him to no end. You know, I can't help but think of my relationship with Lane, uh, my son. He's three and a half, and he's super excited to get to start his first soccer season here at the end of March. I mean, he is all kinds of fired up, and we're excited along with him. But part of that is he wants some new soccer cleats. He's ecstatic about soccer cleats. And one of the things that he has inherited from his dad, whether that's good or bad, is he's incredibly persistent. I mean, he will wear you out to get what he needs. And oftentimes I can find myself so annoyed by the persistent, Daddy, I need, Daddy, I need, Daddy, I need, I need, I need. The reality is is he's going to get it, but he's just going to have to wait. But what Jesus is saying here is that in our persistence, we can expect to be rewarded. We can expect that while it may irritate us for our sons and daughters to wear us out, what Jesus is saying here is that God never gets tired. He never gets irritated with our requests, but rather he rewards it. He rewards it. And I think it's because our persistence demonstrates a few things about us, demonstrates a few things about us. First and foremost, it demonstrates a faith that God will do as he said he would do. Right. It just it demonstrates a faith in God's promises. Number two, it demonstrates an expectation that God is going to show up and to fulfill those promises. Absolutely. God is going to we, we know by faith that God is going to fulfill the promises. But then it demonstrates this anxious awaiting that God is going to do exactly as he says he's going to do. And then third, our persistence demonstrates that we are all in with him, that we need nothing else on this earth. But when we desperately need something, we run to him in prayer. And then fourth and finally, here's what I think our our persistence demonstrates is it helps us move from want to need. See, our persistence in our prayer life helps us move from want to to need. I don't know about you, but for me, I I know for, for example, if I want something, right, I'm going to be persistent about it. But there's a point where my persistence uh, demonstrates whether it's a want or a need. See, if I need something, I'm going to be overly persistent about it in a month or two or three, or maybe even six months later, I am still persistent about it because I need it. Whereas if it's something that I want, oftentimes I I give up on it or I, I forget about it. See, our persistence in prayer demonstrates the difference between a want and a need. And so I think we can summarize part one this way, that the God of the universe is providing us with an open invitation to dine with him, to pull up a chair at his table, to enjoy dinner with our father. And he says it's that our our persistence It's in our persistence that we can expect to receive on our request. 
Now, absolutely, man, this is a great truth. This is a great passage, but it is also one that carries a great deal of weight. See, there's an entire theology that is built on misunderstanding this particular text. See, while yes, it is absolutely true, it's absolutely true that God is offering us an invitation to dine with him and to provide for whatever it is that we ask. That is a truth. That is a promise that God gives us in this text. However, and you've got to hear this, however, God answers our prayer in accordance with his will, in accordance with his goodness, and for our ultimate good. So yes, absolutely, God is going to answer your prayer. He promises to do so, but he's only going to answer his prayer in accordance, or answer your prayer in accordance with his will, in accordance with his goodness, and for our overall good. See, what we have to remember is that God is not a genie and we are not Aladdin. Right, We didn't just stumble into a cave and find a dusty old lamp, knock off the dust, and poof, a genie it comes out, out of this cloud and begins to ask us whatever we want, and I will grant your request. Right, God is not that way. And here's the, here's the reality. We, we wouldn't want God to be that way. See, if God were nothing more than our genie, that would elevate us to God, and he would then become our master, or our servant. Right, It would make us master over God and it would make him our divine servant. And, and, and I don't know about you, but that's not a God that I want to worship. I don't think it's a God that you would want to worship. And so God only answers our prayer in accordance with his will, in accordance with his goodness, and for our ultimate good. And so I want you to hear this. So if God answers our prayers favorably... So if God answers our prayer favorably, then here's what we can do. We can trust that it is in accordance with his will. It's in accordance with his goodness. And it's for our ultimate good. That's absolutely true. Now, on the flip side, if God answers our prayer unfavorably, remember, God promises to answer. And so if God answers our prayer unfavorably, we can trust that it is in accordance with his will. It's in accordance with his goodness and it's for our ultimate good. And so again, whether God answers our request favorably or unfavorably, we can trust, we can believe without a shadow of a doubt that it is in accordance with his will in accordance with his goodness and for our ultimate good. Now guys, this is a reality that has taken me years to get This has been something that I have struggled with my whole life, but I can just tell you, if you hear this, if you trust this and you believe this, this will be incredibly freeing for your life. See, for years, what would happen to me is that if God didn't answer my prayer or give me exactly what I asked for or what I wanted, I would end up doing two things. See, I would end up either believing the lie that God somehow doesn't love me, or that God isn't good. 
So if God didn't give me exactly what I wanted, when I wanted it, how I wanted it, sadly, I would end up believing this lie that somehow God's not good or somehow he doesn't love me. You know, this can probably be best illustrated by the story of my relationship with my brother. Some of you may know this story, so forgive me if I've already told this to you. But over five, about, I guess it was over five years ago, my brother and I, Jordan was there as well. We were at a river in downtown Fort Worth and he jumped in and he broke his neck. It was there where he became a quadriplegic. And, and believe me, from that point on, my prayer life significantly increased. From the from that moment on, man, I gave my life over to prayer, pleading and asking for the Lord. God, would you please heal my brother? And you can rest assured that I was asking, I was seeking, I was knocking. As a matter of fact, I still do that on a very regular basis. I am pleading and asking with the Lord to heal my brother. But the reality is, is that God has yet to do so. God has yet to heal him. But here's what I've learned through this circumstance. Here's what I've learned through many circumstances in my life. See, whether it's through parenthood, my own struggles, maybe maturity, either way, I I don't know. But what I've learned is that when God doesn't answer our prayer the way that we would like or give us what we want, it is because he loves us. It's because he loves us. See, it's because he loves us. It's that he doesn't give us what we want a hundred percent of the time. I think we could all agree that if God did, we would not be a whole lot of fun to be around. <laughs> right? If God gave us exactly what we wanted a hundred percent of the time, I think you and I would probably be pretty terrible human beings. And so it's God's grace that he doesn't give us exactly what we want when we want it. And so that's kind of dealing with part one. Now, part two is dealing with the parable and this specific parable. Jesus says this. He says, which one of you, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is heaven give good things to those who ask him I mean, you can imagine, right, if a son comes up to his father and he's pleading with his father and he says, Father, I'm so hungry, please give me some bread. And in return, the father hands him a stone that actually mimics a loaf of bread. Think about how evil that would be. Or maybe if a son is starving, he's hungry and he's looking for something to eat, he asks his dad, he says, Dad, can I have some fish to eat? And in return, the dad gives him a serpent instead. And so while the son is looking for sustenance, the father actually gives him something of harm. To think of how evil that is. But see, as it is in this parable, the sole point of what Jesus is trying to show here is that God gives to his children only what is good for them. God gives to his children only what is good for them. You know, maybe it'll be helpful for you to see yourself in this parable. See, if you are in Christ this morning, then you are God's son or daughter. I don't know if you know that or not, but that is your fundamental identity. If you are in Christ this morning, then you are a child of God. Ephesians chapter one reminds us of this when Paul writes, blessed be the God of our father, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Oh, this is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See what God or what Paul is saying here is that God has initiated a divine adoption process that before the foundation of the earth, he saw you, he chose you, he brought you to himself. And then what the text says is that he calls you his beloved. You are no longer orphaned, but now you are adopted into the family of God and you are his beloved. See, it is God's goodness to adopt you into his family. That's what, that's what we're reading right here, right? It's God's goodness to adopt you into his family. But I want you to hear this. It is also God's goodness and his will to adopt you into his family. See, it says it right here. It says, according to the purpose of his will. See, your adoption into the family of God is according to the purposes of his will. What that tells me is that God's goodness and his will are inextricably connected. These things are connected. They're absolutely and totally connected. What is good is God's will and what is God's will is ultimately good. If then you are his son and daughter and you ask him for something, here's what you can do. You can rest assured that he is absolutely going to answer. And not only is he going to answer, but he is going to give you what is ultimately best for you. Now, I know that's not what you wanted to hear. It's similar to that when you were a kid and you were asking and pleading from your mom or your dad to give you something. And, and he says, you know, I only want what's best for you. Now, I remember as a kid thinking, no, you don't. You don't know what's best for me. I know what is best for me. It's the same thing, right? Where God is coming to us and he's saying, listen, I know what is best for you. And yet I think that's the problem, isn't it? The problem for you and me is that more often than not, God's best for us is not enough. It's not enough. See, I think it's in our prayer life. It's in our prayer life that reveals at least two ways that you and I misunderstand God. In our prayer life, I think there's two ways that you and I misunderstand God. The first way is this. I think what ends up happening is that we misunderstand God's goodness for our own. We misunderstand God's goodness for our own like I mentioned before, we're left to trust that God is going to answer according to his will, according to his goodness and for our ultimate good. But then we fail to trust him. So it's easy to say hard to believe, right? It's easy to say, absolutely, God is working all things for my good, you know, to repeat the coffee mug verse of Romans eight twenty eight. But then it's hard to believe. Somehow we believe that we know what's best for us and that somehow we know what is good. But even Jesus in this parable reminds us that this is not so. He says, even the father in the parable who knows how to give good gifts to his children is still inherently evil. 
See, while you and I are capable of some good, we can even perceive good. Our understanding, our perception of good is always going to be tainted by sin. It's always going to be tainted by sin. Whereas God, on the other hand, is absolutely and totally perfect, so much so that his understanding of good is not tainted by sin, but it is perfect. Absolutely and totally perfect. See, our understanding of what is good for us and God's understanding of what is good for us sometimes line up. See, while ours is tainted by sin, we still have the capacity for some good, right? We can still feed our kids. We can still put food on the table for our families. We can provide for our family. These are good things. And sometimes what Jesus is saying is what we ask for, what we seek for, what we're knocking for. Sometimes those things that we hold as good are going to line up to his will and according to his goodness and according to our ultimate good and praise God for those moments. Absolutely and totally. We've got to praise God for those moments. But yet we also need to be willing to praise God for the moments when our understanding of good and God's understanding of good don't line up. See, we have to be willing to praise God in the highs on the mountaintops, but we also need to be willing to praise God in the valleys when it appears as though we're not going to get what we want, when we want it, or how we want it. See, oftentimes we misunderstand God's goodness for our own, but number two we misunderstand his will for our own. See, we get God's will mixed up with our own. And you know, this is just a real part of life. I think we do this all the time. We begin to think that God's will for us is to be happy. Well, surely God, I mean, right? If God loves me, then obviously he wants me to be happy. Absolutely. We believe the lie that God's will is for us to have a relationship or, or a future or maybe a current spouse. Man, like I'm just tired of being single. I'm, I'm eager and hungry for a spouse or a partner or a relationship or community. We believe that God's will for us is to have a good job and to provide for our family, right? This is good. These are good things. Absolutely. We believe that God's will for us is that we would be healthy, right? If God has given me this vessel, well, then surely, surely he wants me to steward it well. And so, man, God wants me to be healthy. We believe that God's will for us is to be free from sin and absolutely, totally, right? He even sent Jesus to the cross so that you and I would be free from sin. But see, all of these things are good. All of these things are right, but they are not inherently God's will for your life. Maybe you were here a handful of weeks ago when I had the opportunity to get to preach on a Sunday morning and I reminded you of God's will. See, oftentimes we overcomplicate God's will, but in Matthew 22, Jesus paints exactly what God's will for our life is. He says that you would love him, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind, and that you would love others as yourself. When asked what the will of God is, Paul says a similar thing. He says, this is the will of God. It's your sanctification. That as you learn to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, 
You would then love others as yourself, and in turn, you would begin to look more and more and more like Christ. It's your sanctification that you would grow in your Christ-likeness. That is God's will for your life. And so you can rest assured that God is going to answer your prayer according to His will. According to what is going to drive you to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. See, God's desire is that you would love him above all things. That you would adore him with all that you have, with all that you are. And he answers your prayer in accordance with that will. So whether he answers favorably or whether it's unfavorably, each of those answers are going to drive you to your knees and they're going to drive you to more of God, which, hear me, is your ultimate good. And that is your ultimate good, right? That that you would love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is your ultimate and total good. And so while all there, there's all these good things on this earth, they are all lesser in the wake of God's goodness and desire for you to enjoy him above all things. Now, I think the story of Job is a great example of rightly understanding both God's goodness and his will in some of the most unfortunate of circumstances. You know, you might want to look with me in Job chapter one. This is a description of Job himself. Verse one of chapter one, it says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And hear this. He was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. In other words, Job was a righteous man. Job was known as a righteous man. So much so, so righteous was he that in verse 5, the text says that Job would get up every morning and he would sacrifice a lamb to atone for his sin. But listen, not only would he do it for himself, he would actually grab another lamb, take it along with him, and he would sacrifice an additional lamb, all for the sins of his family. Now guys, that's what it looks like to lead your family spiritually, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what it looks like to lead your wife spiritually. That's what it looks like to lead your family spiritually, to literally lay your life over for them and to cover for their sin. Job was a righteous man. He was an incredible, incredible man. And yet, despite his righteousness, despite Job's righteousness, we see that God allows tragedy in his life for nothing that he did to deserve it. God still allows tragedy, tragedy in his life. As a matter of fact, God takes away everything from him. Maybe you've read the story of Job. It's brutal. It's horrible. God takes away his riches. He takes away his family. He takes away his home. He takes away his land. He takes away his health. God even gives him boils in this brutal disease that not only is miserable to live with, but actually casts him on the outskirts of society where he no longer has friends in a community. But now Job is all alone and by himself. But in verse 20 of chapter one, look how Job responds. Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. He fell on the ground and hear this. And he worshiped Job worshiped. I don't know about you, but if God took away my wife and my kids, my home, my land, my job, I don't know that I'd be worshiping. But Job worshiped and he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I shall return says the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in verse 22, the text says in all of this, Job did not sin 
nor did he charge God with any wrong. And Job was a righteous man. Despite losing everything, he was incredibly righteous. And wildly enough, Job Job never complains. He never asks why until several years of suffering go by. And Job, he finds himself in a weak and a vulnerable moment. And he begins to cry out to God. And he just says, God, why? Why have you done this to me? How can this be according to your will? How can this be in accordance with your goodness? What have I done? I've done nothing but serve and worship you. And in chapters 38 through 41, four chapters, God begins to answer Job. And he doesn't do it in a way that you would expect, but he begins to ask a series of questions of Job. Literally four chapters of questions that begin like this. Job, where were you? Job, where were you when I created the cosmos? Job, where were you when I hung the stars and the moon and the sun and the sky and I literally spun the earth on its axis? Job, where were you when I filled the depths of the ocean? Where were you when I caused the mountains to spring up and light from darkness? Job, where were you when I created the reproductive system? Where were you when I created the human brain with the snap of my fingers? Job, where were you? And what God does is he gives Job a theology lesson that reminds Job of who he is and who God is. So maybe you can feel the weight of Job sitting there, hurting, suffering, just experiencing a brutal moment, just slain, looking up at God and just saying, why? And God gives him a lesson on on the reality of God in his life. And Job answers in chapter 42, and he says this. He says, oh God, now I know that you can do all things. He says, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says, who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? He says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand Things too wonderful for me. Things that I did not know. He says here and I will speak. I will I will question you and you make it known to me. And I want you to see this. This is incredibly important. He says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. See, many people question the goodness of God and the nature of his will in this story. However, However, I think what we see is that while Job thought that he knew God, right? Remember that. Job's a righteous man. He worshiped God. He would get up every morning. He would worship and pour forth praise to God each and every morning. Job thought he knew God. He thought he knew what it meant to worship God. But it was through suffering and through God not answering his prayers the way that he thought he should or the way that he wanted. It was in this valley that God or that Job learned what it meant to know, love and worship God. See what Job says to us, I think what he's saying in this text is, man, I thought I knew. I heard people had told me. People told me all of these things are true, but now my eye sees. My eye now sees you. You know, I don't know where you're at this morning, but 
but I know that there's a lot of pain. I know that there's a lot of hurt. Listen, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt in my life too. I understand. I'm with you. I'm for you. But I think if, if we were to sit down and we were to have dinner with Job, but I think he would say, what I think he would say to our circumstances, I think he would say, hey, just sit and wait. Just watch and see. Watch and see. You may not be able to see it right now. It may not make any sense to you right now, but one day, one day all of this is going to make sense and you too will be able to see. I heard with my ears, but now my eye sees you. I heard with my ears, but now my eye sees you. In other words, I think what we're going to be able to say is, I have been told that this is true, that you are good, that your will is perfect for me, but now I see and now I know. And now I give you all that I have and all that I am. So I think in a thousand years, you and I, (laughs) a thousand years, you and I are going to look back from eternity. And I think we're going to say along with Paul, that this life was light and it was momentary in the weight of eternity. This life was light. It was momentary in the weight of eternity. I heard you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we come to you knowing that you are God Lord, the God who created the cosmos, who brought light out of darkness, who spun the earth on its axis, Lord, who poured forth the waters into the deep. Oh, Father, you are that God. God, I'm thankful that you have invited us an open invitation to dine with you through prayer. And so, Father, it is my prayer that we would be faithful to take up that seat, to sit at the table knowing that whatever it is that we ask, you will meet us in our need and that you promise to answer. But then, Lord, I pray this morning that I pray that we would understand that you answer according to your will, according to your goodness, and according to our ultimate good, Father. And we would trust that that is the absolute best thing for us. God, give us faith to believe that. God, that we would be just like Job, those who have ears to hear, but now our eyes see you. May you receive all of our worship, all of our praise, for it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Are you in need of daily encouragement or want to learn more about First Baptist Belton? Visit our website at www.fbcbelton.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Follow and like today. Thanks for listening to today's message.